Well, beloved listeners, many of you know that uh, the former Greek finance minister and founder of the Democracy in Europe movement, Yanis Varoufakis, has been a, a regular on our Little Wireless program for over a decade, discussing Greece's debt crisis, its battles with the European Union, and attitudes to democracy itself. And we've studied the history of Greece and how it impacts on today's politics with Nicholas Devanis, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of New South Wales, some time ago. Of course, it's impossible to begin to hint at the history of Greece in a, a few interviews or even just one book. Yet, our next author has someone who has tried. James Hennage has been fascinated by both history and books. From a young age, he opened a, a very successful chain of bookstores chaired the Cheltenham Literary Festival and then, along with author James Holland, set up his own festival dedicated to history, the Chalk Valley History Festival in Salisbury, uh, draws large audiences. And uh, James is also the author of four best-selling historical novels set in Byzantium. And his latest work, The Shortest History of Greece, is published by Black Ink Books. James, welcome to our little wireless program. As a POM, you're following a fine tradition of fascination with Greece. What drew you to study it? Uh, my first interest, Philip, was um, in Rome because um, Rome seemed to have all of the things to excite uh, a young boy in terms of great armies, etc., but then I discovered that Rome really was responsible for inventing concrete, aqueducts, uh, the arch, and a few other quite boring things, and that pretty much everything in Rome was owed to the Greeks, their philosophy, their uh, at least in part their mode of government, uh, their founding myth, etc. Uh, and that's when I became started becoming fascinated in Greece. And I think I've become more fascinated as I've discovered how Greece continues to hold so many answers to the issues of today. It's, it's, it's a timeless culture. Take us back to the archaic period and uh, tell us how Sparta was profoundly different to Athens. Sparta was profoundly different in that it was essentially an, a militaristic society whose whole structure was based on the keeping down of the helot. What the uh, Spartans had done uh, in the, around the 8th century and going on through to the 6th and 5th century BC was to enslave an entire race of other Greeks who were known as the Messinians. And the way that they, they, the Messinians greatly outnumbered them and the way that they kept them down was to make their menfolk into the best warriors in the world. And they did that through a system called the agogi, which was effectively a training in military prowess uh, that you began in, at the age of seven. And um, you continued in, in military service until the age of 60. It made them quite simply the best soldiers in the world. But the fact that the Spartans have throughout history been so beloved of the nastiest fascist regimes, I think, tells you a lot about them. This was a, a society of iron discipline. Um, and the Athenians, on the other hand, were was a society based on uh, releasing human creativity, which is why 
and they were able to create great beauty like the Parthenon, like the uh, statues of Praxiteles, etc. And they expressed this through a form of government, democracy, very different to our sort of democracy, which gave every person within, uh, every citizen within the city, the chance to participate within some part of the democracy, whether it was the council or the magistracies. So it was, as Aristotle put it, to rule and be ruled in turn. Let's now jump to the classical age to, uh, well, 594 BCE. Would you be kind enough to tell me about the ruler named Solon? Solon was a fascinating character. He followed on from a man called Draco, who sort of set down the initial laws of uh, Athens, and as the name suggests, they were draconian. Uh, What he did was to realise that uh, Athens was becoming a society of extremes, extreme in terms of some people with a lot of wealth and others without any whatsoever. And debt bondage was a major problem, which meant that uh, you were effectively enslaved by those that you owed money to. And what he did was to allow all citizens to begin participating in the ecclesia, which was the assembly that uh, that effectively ruled Athens. They couldn't vote, but they could uh, but they could um, participate, and as well as in the courts. And what he also did was to um, stage a series of economic reforms, um, like reforming the coinage, supporting olive production and black figure pottery, that transformed Athens as an economic centre. And of course, it's this Greece that the 18th and 19th century English and Europeans uh, would later admire so much. Yes, it was the it was the Greece that Byron and all who read Child Harold, his great best-selling poem, uh, admired. It was it was the Greece of the Enlightenment. It was the Greece of of freedom through a form of democracy that has not been seen again in our world, very very sadly. The the great pity of um, Athenian democracy was that it lasted for three hundred short years. Uh, and was then eclipsed by the Roman system of government, which was effectively representative democracy, but more an oligarchy because Rome was ruled by a few patrician families. And it's that system of government that we have inherited today. Epaminondas of Thebes, if you please. So Epaminondas of Thebes, fascinating character. Um, the, The French philosopher Montaigne described him as one of the worthiest men that ever lived. And indeed he was. He doesn't seem to have had any personal ambition for wealth or fame. What he did, he did for the sake of freedom. He he it was who transformed Thebes, that was effectively the third city-state after Athens and Sparta in terms of size and might. He transformed it from an oligarchy into a democracy uh, in the early 4th century BC. Uh, and he also reformed its army. And by doing that, he was he did the unthinkable, which is that he defeated Uh, Sparta, but not only did he defeat it on the battlefield, it also he also managed to defeat its means of existence because what he immediately did, having defeated Sparta, was to build a city, the ancient Messenia, which you can now still see today, for the Messenians that they were able to defend against any sort of resurgent Sparta, and by destroying Sparta's 
means of existence. It destroyed the entire philosophy, militaristic philosophy that underpinned their rule. I have to ask about uh, the Sacred Band. Tell me about them. Sacred Band was uh, fascinating because it was um, Epaminondas' more democratic version of what I've just mentioned, the agogi, which was the training, the, what made the Spartan elite. What he did was to match pairs of male lovers within a 300-strong band, uh, knowing that uh, the man will always be unlikely to break the line if he feels that his neighbour is going to be endangered. So he created a 300-strong band of twins of male lovers, uh, who would fight for each other to the death. How extraordinary. And, of course, Thebes goes on to form an alliance with Athens and uh, ushers in that golden age of Greek democracy you mentioned. Well, yes, I mean, this is interesting because the golden age some people refer to as before that, the time of Pericles, which was, you know, in the 5th century, which was after the Persian Wars had been won, the building of the Parthenon, uh, the Athenian League and all of that. You then had this terrible hiatus of the Peloponnesian War, a, a very bloody, destructive 30-year war that lasted 430 to about 404 BC. You then had Thebes joining Athens and destroying Sparta, as we've just discussed, and Pamanondas. And then after that, you have this relatively short 50-year period of, uh, of, of Athenian and Theban democracy gaining new adherents across a new um, Athenian league until finally it's stamped out by Philip of Macedon. Philip, which is Greek for lover of horses, is interviewing James, James Hennage. And let us now move on to the interesting fact, perhaps the paradox, that Greek history is peppered with extraordinary women. Yes, I can mention uh, my favourite was a woman called Hypatia, who was a philosopher and mathematician and astronomer, uh, actually, quite late in the 4th century AD, the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries AD, she lived in Alexandria, uh, and she was beloved by um, both um, other philosophers, male philosophers, all of her students, both Christians and pagans alike. And she was assassinated in 415 by a Christian mob and, uh, and bizarrely then uh, co-opted as a Christian martyr. Some people see her as the prototype to... St. Catherine of Alexandria, which was, of course, a nonsense. She was murdered for a, by a Christian mob because she supported the Roman prefect against the fanatical Greek bishop uh, at the time. And she's seen, I think, now as a symbol of pre-Christian rationality abolished by the absolutism of Christianity. James, let's now move on to the emergence of two profoundly different ideas, Stoicism and Epicureanism. Yes, I mean, Epicureanism and Stoicism were the two philosophical strains that existed after the Socratics. And interestingly, after the, the crucial thing about Greek democracy was that it uh, assumed a complete tie-in between philosophy and political science, that leading the good life could only happen if you set the context for that life to be led. So the two were intertwined. And 
when Philip of Macedon effectively ended direct democracy, there seemed no point in fixing the context. So philosophy turned inwards, uh, and Stoicism and Epicureanism were the two major standard bearers of philosophy that lasted right the way through the Hellenistic period, Alexander the Great's great empire, and right the way through the Roman period, right up to the coming of Christianity. And they were very different. Stoicism was about bearing the onslaughts of life through virtuous self-control. And Epicureanism was about um, freedom from superstition, which is why it was loathed by the Christians, because, of course, it, um, they didn't believe in an afterlife. But the genius of Epicurus is shown in the fact that he uh, argued that all matter was made up of tiny particles in motion. Yes, and this is the fascinating subject of Lucretius's great um, poem, De Rerum Natura, which was discovered in a monastery in the 16th century. It's amazing how advanced Epicurus was. He believed that we were everything in the world was made up of, of, of atoms that were in constant movement. Uh, and he predated uh, atomic theory, bizarrely, by a couple of thousand years. Why did Dante place him in the sixth circle of hell, where he was eternally trapped in a flaming coffin? What was his sin, according to Dante? His sin, according to Dante, was the denial of an afterlife. And, of course, that underpinned the entire Christian mission, which was that you, it was worth um, suffering the onslaughts of this life in order to be obedient and then in order to uh, enjoy an afterlife in heaven. And um, the afterlife was critical to that Christian message. And Epicurus's problem, as far as the Christian church was concerned, is he said it didn't exist because he believed that superstition uh, or freedom from superstition was the route to happiness. Well, of course, belief in life after death is central to, to most faiths to this day. Now, relations with Russia have had ramifications for Greece across the centuries, even today. Tell us about the late 10th century's Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Basil is a fascinating character. He's third of the Macedonian dynasty, and by the 10th, 11th centuries when he reigned, Byzantium, or the Greek Empire, had recovered after the Arab onslaught of the um, 6th, 7th century. And what he did was, in 988, is he exported Orthodox Christianity to Russia, to the Kievan Rus, and he converted Vladimir the Great in 988 to Orthodox Christianity. He was given in return the Varangian Guard, which was a terrifying bodyguard of, of, of six and a half foot Russians to guard him. And ever after, from then on, the ties between Russian and Greek Orthodox churches and the two nations have been very profound. Well, Russia's uh, Cyrillic script was actually created by two Greek brothers. It was. It was, it was um, invented by Cyril and Methodius, who were known as the apostles to the Slavs. They were two Greeks, two Greek churchmen who went out and they invented the Cyrillic um, alphabet in order for the Bible to be translated into a language that the Slavs, who were being assimilated into the empire in the 7th century, uh, could understand. Uh, it was hated by the Christians, and um, when they were 
arraigned in, in Venice for so doing, Methodius came out with this marvellous phrase, falls not to God's reign upon all equally and shines not the sun upon us all. But how dare they have this this alphabet because the the truth of God could only be told in the sacred languages of Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Absolutely, which was why the Christian church, uh, to many of us, uh, was, is very problematic because it was an extremely exclusive club only really understood by those who spoke Latin uh, until the time of Martin Luther. I was fascinated by your reference to the... Uh, that gigantic squad of guards, and uh, I'd like, because it, it's so reminiscent of the Wizard of Oz, tell us about Byzantine emperors and uh, the way they hid from the crowds. Um, they hid from the crowds, um, it depended slightly upon the emperor, some hid more than others, but uh, the most important thing was that, rather like I suppose the British, royal family, um, um, the mystique of the institution is all. And the way that they did it was using science. So if you visited, if you were a foreign diplomat and you visited the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople, in one of his many palaces, uh, he would be seated on an enormous golden throne that would then at some stage levitate off the ground <laughs> by these hydraulic um, uh, lifts. And at the same time, in golden trees, golden birds would mechanically sing uh, around you. And two golden lions either side of the, uh, of the throne, which had stayed on the ground, would begin to slam their tails across along the floor. All of this was done by science, and it caused absolute amazement, fear and consternation amongst those well, who saw it. Well, as it would. But, James, are we sure these stories are not apocryphal? They're just too... Wonderful to be true. And there are too many diplomats, Philip, who attest to it in their writing for them to be apocryphal. Uh, I remember these were the people who invented Greek fire in the 7th century, which was a fire that could burn on water, delivered by a siphon um, on board a boat. And it's what held back two Arab invasions, attempts to take Constantinople in the 7th and 8th centuries. They invented, effectively, the first napalm. That's how advanced they were. The Greeks also set up, and this, I thank you for telling me this, the first foreign intelligence agency called the Bureau of the Barbarians. Tell us about them. No one's very certain who set up the Bureau of Bar Barbarians, but my belief is that it was probably Justinian, the great emperor, that uh, in, this, in the 6th in, in the century managed to recover large parts of Italy and Spain for the empire after the fall of the West. Um, but the marvellous thing about the Bureau of, of Barbarians was that it, was, it recruited people from all of the nations and bordering states likely to be enemies to the Byzantine Empire, the better to understand their culture and their likely tactics. And I think there's a lesson there for the idea of universalism put forward by America in particular and other parts of the West. We believe that uh, we, America might have done a great deal better and Britain and others might have done a lot better in Iraq if we'd actually bothered to sit down and understand our enemy. I like the way they would send uh, deluxe editions of uh, classical works to foreign rulers as they passed through and uh, they sent diplomats to serve in roles in foreign courts. We're looking at soft diplomacy, aren't we? That's exactly right, uh, to which must be added 
Um, and this is why it was unfortunate to be a daughter, a beautiful daughter, usually, of a Byzantine emperor. They used their daughters as, the, as one of the big diplomatic pawns. Uh, they were married off quite often to uncouth barbarians who were hammering at the gates of Constantinople. You're listening to Late Night Live, and uh, the book is The Shortest History of Greece, and the author is James Hennage. Time for you to tell me about the Greek Camelot. The Greek Camelot was Mistras. So you have to imagine the 1,130-year Byzantine Empire. We called it, we call it, the French actually called it Byzantine. Uh, they called themselves Roman, but they were effectively Greek. It begins with the founding of Constantinople in 330 by Constantine, and it ends with the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. In the last 200 years of this empire, while the rest of the empire is crumbling to nothing, there is this extraordinary renaissance that happens in the Peloponnese in southern Greece. And it happens at a city called Mistras, which is, can still be visited today. It's probably one of the most magical places on earth, built on a... Uh, on a hill. And as so often happens when an empire is disintegrating, the rich and the powerful uh, take to the ships and they escape. They all came to Mistras, they brought their wealth with them, they brought philosophy, art, everything with them, and they created this extraordinary cap Camelot, which lasted for the last 200 years of Byzantine Empire. And at this Camelot, the final emperor, Constantine XI, was crowned in the tiny, tiny, tiny cathedral there, then took ship to Constantinople, and three years later he died defending it against the Turks. So, like the Camelot with which we're more familiar, it was a place for romance and courtly love. Exactly right. And if, if anybody does make it over to Mistras, you can still feel in the air this sense of romance and courtly love. Very different, 60 miles away from another Byzantine city you can still visit today called Monemvasia, which was a pirately place. It was a place of, of trade. It was on the sea, extremely beautiful, but it was the exact yin to Mistras's yang. <laughs> now, Constantinople forced at the Turks in 1453, and besides the bloodshed, it was a massive loss to the empire that the Greeks had never really gotten over. It was the end, really, of, of a crucial part of Greek history and the end of the Greeks as a significant presence on the world stage because they then fall into this four to five hundred year sleep, depending upon where in Greece you live, where they are effectively vassals to the Turks of the Ottoman Empire. And when they wake up at the end of that four to five hundred years, they find that the world has changed ends. Uh, the East is no longer in the ascendant, the West is, and the West is all powerful, and they've conquered large parts of the East in their colonial adventure. So that's when they realise, because the West has also had an enlightenment by this stage, and seen for themselves how much they owe to ancient Greece, that the Greeks wake up to realising that they can leverage this sense of debt that the West feels uh, in order to bring them into their war of independence and win it against the Turks, which they then do. Now, the Greek push for independence from the Ottomans begins in earnest in the 1820s, I guess, and they needed support from Europe, especially Great Britain, and they needed money. 
they needed money. And this is where a fascinating character from history, one of history's great rogues, turns up. And he was an Irishman called Blackier. He was responsible for bringing Byron. He found Byron in Genoa trying to get away from uh, a young love. Uh, and he helped him by telling him to come to Greece and help the cause there. But he also, before that, went to London with the most absurd prospectus for why the London Stock Exchange should open its coffers to help Greece. It ma he managed to say in the prospectus that Greece was potentially richer than the whole of South America put together, amongst other extraordinary claims. But enough people believed him for the first London loan to Greece, amounting to a million pounds, a lot of money in those days, was then sent to Greece. Uh, and then another loan of two million was raised a year later, again on the stock exchange. And the important thing about this was that not that the money was particularly well spent, it wasn't. And not that much of it actually got to Greece once all the dastardly fees were taken off. But the importance of it was that Great Britain, the most powerful, the richest country in the world, had skin in the game, it had financial skin in the game. And that ultimately is a good reason why it felt it needed to participate in them winning their revolution. And Byron becomes, in a sense, collateral damage. Byron does. And Byron, um, after a lot of shilly-shallying, eventually uh, arrives at a a very nasty small coastal town called Missolongne, which he completely detests in 1824. Uh, he spends three or four months doing absolutely nothing uh, except catching a fever and ultimately dying. So there's nothing glorious about this death at all. But it is so important because symbolically it basically says that Byron has died for the cause. And because Byron was the sort of Mick Jagger of the 19th century in terms of world <laughs> that, That's an outrageous parallel to draw. <laughs> I meant in terms of fame rather than beauty of output. But um, he, was very, he was internationally famous. It's difficult for us now to understand quite how famous well, argue, was. Well, arguably he's the first sort of true celebrity of the modern age. Absolutely right, Philip. That's exactly what he was. He was the, he, and, and the fascinating thing about him was that he understood this new beast that was growing within the West, which was this thing never before seen called public opinion. And what he did was by dying beautifully in, well, not so beautifully, but memorably in Greece in 1824, was that he, he began to shift public opinion in favour of helping the Greeks, which is not at all what the rulers of Europe wanted to do. They'd had the French Revolution, and the very last thing they wanted was another popular revolution. So James's book traces the Greek tragedy that ensues in the 19th and 20th century right to the present day, but you'll have to read it to learn more. What are your hopes for Greece going forward, James, for democracy I itself? Well, my hopes for Greece are very positive. I think one of the interesting things about Greece is that it had a financial crisis to beat all financial crises. And it, that was as a result of populism. If the answer to populism is to scrape rock bottom, then Greece has done it. And it's emerging victorious from the other side. I think democracy is another issue. I think we have some major, major issues with Western democracy that we need to, to sort out. And maybe ancient Greece can help us. And on that warning note, we thank you for coming on the programme. I've been talking to James Hinnage, author of The Shortest History of Greece, published by 
our friends at Black Ink Books. Thanks, James. Thank you very much, Philip. It's been a great pleasure. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.